Welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. This is a podcast intended to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum published by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I am host Ben James, and every week I lead you through the lessons in a way that is intended to help you better understand the scriptures, make you think about important questions, and strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ. You can also find the video version of these lessons on my YouTube channel, titled 29th Floor Sunday School. If you find these lessons useful, please consider becoming a subscriber. Enjoy the lesson. But welcome back. I'm glad uh, that you're going to spend a little bit of time with us today as we uh, today study the lesson for May 27th through June 2nd, uh, the title of which, The Son of Man Shall Come. Uh, and we start today's lesson uh, in Mark 12. And Mark begins uh, by giving some of the exact same parables that we uh, discussed last week as we were reading uh, largely from the Matthew account. Uh, we begin with the parable of the wicked husbandmen. <clears throat> if you recall, these are men that had, uh, that, that had been hired to care for a vineyard by the master. Uh, and then as the master sent servants to see how things were going, they beat up each of those servants, and then the son came, he's, and they subsequently uh, murdered the son, knowing that he was the heir, thinking that by doing so, they might uh, wickedly take over the vineyard. So we have this story again. I guess one difference is that in this account, um, in, in the Mark account, uh, Mark tells us that the master had only one son uh, that came. It wasn't just a son, it was his one son, whom he calls well-beloved. Uh, clearly, this is referring to the Savior, Jesus Christ, as that son. And then we also had the Sadducees who asked the impossible question about the woman who was married to seven different uh, brothers, each of whom died, and then the question of whose would she be in the resurrection. And if you recall, the Savior's response was a testimony that they neither understood the resurrection nor understood how marriage worked in the resurrection. And all of these matters will be settled before the resurrection. But there are some stories that I want to uh, dive a little bit deeper in today and then tie them into uh, some of the new stories that we'll be discussing today. Uh, these include uh, the question as to whether or not it is uh, appropriate to pay tribute to Caesar. Uh, and the question is, which, which is the greatest of the commandment? And we'll be tying that in with the story of the widow's might. And we'll see here a theme develop that uh, I find to be the theme of uh, today's lesson, which is how do we show our love to God and how do we give everything to God uh, as his servants and as his uh, disciples? And they also address the question of where, where should our priorities be? Uh, so let's begin with the question... <clears throat> Of, uh, of the Caesar uh, of, uh, uh, of the tribute money and whether or not it is appropriate to pay tribute to Caesar. Um, if you recall, they, they ask him this question, uh, is it appropriate to pay Caesar, uh, to pay tribute to Caesar, hoping that they could catch him? And, uh, and he responds to them, uh, give me uh, a, give me a penny and I'll show you and he shows them if you recall we talked about this last week he shows them the inscription and then famously says in verse 17 in Mark he says render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things which are God's and this concludes with and they marveled at him 
but I think what, what I want to focus here on is verse 15, though. As they ask their question, they ask him, they, they, first they state it in verse 14, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Then in, first, then in verse 15, they double down and notice the nature in which they ask the question, shall we give or shall we not give? To them, it's a black and white question. They've asked it in a, in a binary manner. It's either one or two, A or B. There's only one option. We give or we do not give. But of course, the Savior's response to them elaborates on that. And he's not about to get bind down and say, yes, give. No, don't give. And instead, he teaches a principle, a correct principle. He elaborates on that in a way that is much more profound and beautiful and meaningful than their original, than their original binary question. <clears throat> and so I think it's worth asking ourselves, do we often, as we approach uh, questions that we might have, do we, like the scribes and Pharisees, do so in a binary manner? In other words, do we say, here's this question, it's either yes or it's no. Because we can get in trouble as we do so, because most questions, especially about spiritual and eternal manners, matters, are not necessarily yes or no question. Last week we had district conference, and as we were singing the song, Choose the Right, there's a line in there that says, there is a right and a wrong to every question. And I heard my daughter, my 12-year-old daughter next to me saying, that's not true. You know what? She's right. There's not a right and a wrong to every question. In fact, a lot of questions are much more complex than that. Let me give you an example. This is one that uh, has meant a lot to me ever since I first read it. <clears throat> and I read it in a, in a book by Elder Bednar titled Act and Doctrine. It's a little uh, a long account, but it's, it's, it's worth reading. <clears throat> he talks about how he was at a priesthood training session. He doesn't say where. Uh, but there was a, a new member that stood and asked this simple and straightforward question. Elder Bednar, is it permissible to eat pork? I responded by asking several questions that helped me to learn about his recent baptism and his experiences that full-time missionaries had taught him. I asked him if he was familiar with the Doctrine and Covenants. The man indicated that he knew the Doctrine and Covenants was a book of scripture, but had not yet read it. I suggested he would find the answer to his question in section 89 of the Doctrine and Covenants and invited him to read that revelation at a later time. Before I could solicit another question, this good brother again asked, Elder Bednar, is it permissible to eat pork? I promised the man that he would find his answer in section 89 and started to call on another brother to ask a question. In a loud voice, the man exclaimed, Elder Bednar, your answer is unacceptable. I simply want you to tell me if it is permissible to eat pork. The tone of his voice and the tension in the room suggested that this particular episode might not have a happy conclusion. I once again invited the brother to act and find his answer by reading and studying section 89. He once again requested that I answer his question. I finally said, dear brother, you have asked the same question several times and I have given the same answer several times. Let's call it a draw. I do not think your question will change and I am quite sure my answer will not change. Please read section 89 of the Doctrine and Covenants so you can find for yourself the answer you need. Our exchange ended with the man having a disgusted and most unpleasant look on his face, 
and I wondered if I had mishandled the answering of his question and caused him unnecessary exasperation. The next morning, as I walked into the church building, where a large multi-state conference was to be held and from which the proceedings would be broadcast to many other congregations, I was approached by a church media service employee. He excitedly indicated that he had a message from the man who had asked the question about eating pork in the priesthood leadership meeting. I must confess that I initially thought, oh no, the man wants, to, wants me to know that I offended him and he is not coming back to church ever again. Instead, I was given the following report. Tell Elder Bednar I got my answer. Please tell Elder Bednar that I got my answer. I read section 89 and I got my answer. <clears throat> I love this story because it teaches so clearly a simple question. Can you eat pork? Is it permissible to eat pork within the word of wisdom? I think we all know the answer to that. It's a very simple question. It's a very yes or no question, the way this man was phrasing it in a very binary manner. But Elder Bednar was in tune enough with the Spirit to know that for this man, for whatever reason, the fact that he was asking it meant it wasn't such an easy question. And his question couldn't be dictated to him, even by a member of the Quorum of the Twelve but rather the only way that he could get the answer he needed was to pray about it and to study it and through the Spirit seek his answer to this seemingly binary question. So one principle from today I hope we can gather is that in the Gospel there aren't that many simple yes or no binary questions, but rather we have our questions and we need our answers. And sometimes our answer might be a little bit different from the answer that somebody else gives. And that's okay. We seek our answers and then we live according to the answers we receive. And then of course one of the challenges is we recognize that our answer is personal. And it might differ in some ways from another person's answer. And so our, jo our job, our responsibility is not to judge another person's answer or the way they live out the answers they receive, but to faithfully seek our own answers and follow those. So, again, a simple question, but the Savior's response is beautiful. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And of course, so his response here still leaves a difficult question. How do we distinguish between the things that are Caesar's and the things that are God's? And this is not always a simple question. In fact, the lines often get quite blurry. And so it's important for us in our lives to have the Spirit and to seek the right answers. Okay, the next story uh, we want to address is whether or not, uh, is what the great commandments are. And here, starting in verse 28, we have a scribe that comes to the Savior, who it says in verse 28, having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him which is the first commandment of all. So here we learn a little bit about this scribe. He seems to be sincere. And he seems to be impressed with the answers that the Savior has thus far given. 
And because of that, he himself wants to benefit from the Savior's knowledge, from the things that the Savior has taught. And so he asked the question, which is the first and great commandment? To which the Savior famously responds, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely, this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. And then in verse 32, interestingly, the scribe gives his own summation of this. In verse 32, Well, Master, thou hast said the truth. For there is one God, and there is none other but he. And then in verse 33, And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself, is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So he, this scribe, this man whose job it was to carefully record the different rituals that the Jews were to follow. He recognizes the truth in the Savior's answer, and in summation he says, wow, loving God and loving our neighbor, that's more important than all of these rituals. That's more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. All these rituals I've spent my time with, that I've made my career out of, my whole livelihood, could have just summed them up by the way you did, just loving God and loving others. And the Savior approves his answer, saying, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. And then we go to the next question, the next uh, story. Uh, at the end of Mark, in verse 41. He sat over against the treasury, and they were observing how people were casting their money into the treasury of the temple, how they were making their donations to the temple. Now, of course, this was in compliance with the law of Moses as dictated. And there came a certain poor widow, and she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. These are small copper coins, the value of which is essentially irrelevant compared to the beauty compared to the elaborateness of the great temple. But he calls his disciples. So he wants to make sure they're paying attention. He calls to them and says, Verily I say unto you, that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. Verse 44. For all they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. So the widow was praised for contributing everything that she had. As the Savior taught them the principle that it's not the absolute amount that you contribute that's more important. It's, if you will, the percentage that you cast in. It's it's the proportion relative to how much you actually have that matters. And this poor widow that had nothing gave everything that she had. Let's tie these together if we could. So from the question about giving tribute to Caesar, 
we learn that we are to distinguish between the things that are the world's and the things which are God's. From the question of the great commandment, we learn that it's more important to give tribute to God by loving him and our neighbor than it is to strictly follow rituals. And from the widow's might, we learn that we are to give everything to God and love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So these, these, these three stories together teach us about how we are to love God, how we are to praise God, and what we are to give to God. So we first have to distinguish what belongs to God. Then we have to learn how to give it to God. And then we are to realize that the answer is we give everything that we have to God. And from this I recall one of my favorite uh, one of my favorite quotes of all time <clears throat> from uh, Elder Maxwell that he gave in a 19, October 1995 conference address titled Swallowed Up in the Will of the Father. Near the very end he gave this brilliant summary. Uh, and it's about the contributions that we make, how we give to God. In conclusion, the submission of one's will is really the only uniquely personal thing we have to place on God's altar. The many other things we give, brothers and sisters, are actually the things he has already given or loaned to us. However, when you and I finally submit ourselves by letting our individual wills be swallowed up in God's will, then we are really giving something to him. It's the only possession which is truly ours to give. And I think as we tie these three stories together about rendering to God the things which are God, about how the great commandment is to love God with all our heart, might, mind, and strength, and how the widow, in her need, in her want, gave all that she had and did and in so doing gave the most i think these can all tie together to teach the same principle that elder maxwell taught so eloquently we are to give everything that we have to god and the only thing that we have that is uniquely ours to actually give him is our heart is our might is our mind and is our strength Giving him a portion of whatever abundance he has blessed us with isn't giving him anything. It's him letting us keep the majority. Rendering anything to Caesar rather than to God and then giving a portion to God isn't giving really anything to God. It's taking what's already his and giving it back to him. The only thing that is ours that we can actually give to God is our hearts. It's our will. And as we do that, we are giving him everything that we have. From the parable, or, uh, sorry, from the story of the widow's mite, uh, we go to Luke chapter 21. 
Luke chapter 21 begins with the story of the widow's might. And then it leads into a discussion of the second coming. A discussion of the destruction, the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And then the coming judgment of the world in the second coming. And it's interesting to note that right after the story of the widow's might, as they watched this widow, and we don't know anything about her. We don't know if it was a young young woman with children draped over her who had recently lost her young husband, or whether it was an old widow who would soon be joining her deceased husband on the other side. We don't know these details. It's left to our imagination to to think what, what might be the case. But after they had watched this widow <clears throat> contribute all of her living, in verse 5, And as some spake of the temple, how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts. It's possible to think that these, his disciples, who were good men, had seen this widow give everything that they had, and then they looked around at the beautiful temple, how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts, and thought to themselves, it's just not fair. Why does this widow who has nothing, why is she giving to this temple? Her two mites aren't going to make much of a difference. Look how beautiful this temple is. Look at the amazing gifts that other people have given so that we might have this beautiful temple. And perhaps they thought, that's just not right. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And perhaps uh, we might think about, think that as well. Why is it that someone in South America or someone in Africa is forced to pay tithing? At the same percentage that we here in in America or in other places pay tithing. That just doesn't seem right. Well, let me share with you a, a, a quote from, uh, a teaching from the prophet Joseph F. Smith. He was talking about his mother, Mary Fielding Smith, when he was young. How, of course, Hiram was his father, and Hiram had been uh, had been murdered, had been martyred with his brother Joseph. And it wasn't easy for Mary Fielding to take care of her many children while also keeping the commandments. And one day she came to the tithing office. She was ready to unload. some of her potatoes that she was giving to the church, giving to the Lord as her contribution. And one of the clerks came out and said, Widow Smith, it's a shame that you should have to pay tithing. And he chided my mother for paying her tithing, called her anything but wise and prudent, and said there were others who were strong and able to work that were supported from the tithing office. So this good-hearted clerk, no doubt, Realizing the difficulty that Sister Smith was in. It was perhaps like some of the Savior's disciples after witnessing the widow donating her two mites. Sister Smith responded. My mother turned upon him and said, Would you deny me a blessing? If I do not pay my tithing, I should expect the Lord to withhold his blessings from me. I pay my tithing not only because it is a law of God, but because I expect a blessing by doing it. Certainly, Sister Smith's faith 
something we can all learn from. Similar to this widow who gave all that she had to God. And as we struggle to find all that we have so that we can give it to God, it's important to keep in mind the example of this widow and Sister Smith, who is also a widow, and their faith and their devotion. And perhaps the Savior here was trying to teach the gospel, the, the, his disciples a lesson. I mean, it's interesting to note that as they were watching this, and as this widow was about to make her donation, he gathered his disciples together. He pointed this out to them. He wanted them to see what she was about to do. Perhaps he was trying to teach them. My friends, look. Look at the faith of this woman. She's giving everything that she has to this church. And you are going to be in charge of it. And you had better take that responsibility seriously. Because there's women out there, there's men out there that are literally giving everything that they have to you, to this organization, to lead and to, for you to lead and to guide. And you had better take that sacred responsibility seriously. Anyway, verse 5 is something we normally skip over, but I think, it is, I think it's profound and beautiful in some of the lessons it teaches. <clears throat> and then we go to, uh, and then after that, verse 5, after the disciples have commented on how beautiful the temple is and how many wonderful, expensive, extravagant, extravagant gifts there are, in verse 6, the Savior gives a sobering prophecy, and it leads to a discussion about the coming destruction of Jerusalem, the end of the world, and the second coming. In verse 6, he said, As for these things which ye behold, the days will come, in the which there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. So in other words, yes, my disciples, you're looking and you're seeing this big, beautiful temple that so many people have contributed to build. But one day it's going to be gone. And there won't even be a stone left upon another. Either it's going to be destroyed by other men, as was the case with the beautiful temple in Jerusalem, when just some 40 years later the Romans ransacked Jerusalem, to quelch a rebellion that the Jews had started, killing as much as a million Jews in the process. So either this temple might be destroyed by other men, or simply the process of time might take its toll. And hopefully our lives will not be destroyed by other men, and hopefully the things that we spend our lives building will not be uh, savagely destroyed and ransacked. But certainly the process of time will destroy everything that we've worked for, at least in this world. And that's something to think about. As we spend our lives, spend all of our time building our legacy, whether it's our homes, whether it's our cars, whether it's working on deals, whether it's building buildings, whatever it is that we do to spend our time. The sobering reality is 200 years from now, it's not going to matter. I stand on the 29th floor of a 
beautiful building, beautiful high-rise here in downtown Hong Kong, looking out at beautiful buildings behind me. Each one of these buildings is eventually going to be taken down, and something else will be built in its stead. All the deals that I work on now will eventually just fade away into distant memory and be completely irrelevant. Everything that you work on right now, no matter what your occupation, eventually is going to come to naught. I think that's part of what the Savior is teaching them here. This beautiful temple that you admire and you worship in, and rightly so, one of these days it's going to be nothing. So what do we do about that? Well, I'd say the re correct response is we don't take ourselves so seriously, at least not as it comes to the world. And of course, this leads into prophecies about the end of the world. And one way to think about the end of the world is not the planet blowing up or global warming coming and killing everything that we have, but when Christ talks about the end of the world, we're again making that distinction between those things which are Caesar's or the world's and the things which are God's or the things which are eternal. Because the world, whether it be a building or whatever it is we're working on or working in, will eventually go away. But the things that we create that are eternal, our faith, our families, our testimonies, those are the things that are last, that will last. Those are the things that are eternal. And even after the end of the world, after wickedness is gone, those things will remain. So in reading about the end of the world, and in reading, preparing for the second coming, uh, we are, uh, in this reading, we are given to read uh, Joseph Smith Matthew, uh, which is the prophet Joseph Smith's uh, translation of, uh, as he was translating his Bible, tra translating the Bible, fixing some of the things that had been taken out. He retranslated the entirety of uh, Matthew chapter uh, 24. And we have that here in the Pearl of Great Price is Joseph Smith Matthew. Now, to be honest, I don't want to spend a lot of time discussing end of the world, second coming, because I think the most relevant verse to this whole concept is verse 40. But of that day, I'm in Joseph Smith Matthew here, verse 40, but of that day and hour no one knoweth, no, not the angels of God in heaven, but my Father only. So no one knows when the second coming is going to be. Only God the Father knows that. And so we could waste a lot of time trying to guess when that would be, but I don't think that's what we're supposed to do. And in fact, in a minute we're going to cover a few parables that teach us that that's not what we're supposed to do. In fact, part of the whole plan is that we don't know when the second coming, when the end will come. And we don't know whether that will be a universal end or a personal end, which is one of the great mysteries of life. We don't know when our time on this earth will end. This is something that I've been reminded of in a very, 
powerful way in the past two years. A little more than a year ago, both of my parents passed away within a 14-day period. It started with, my, with an accident that my dad had that caused severe brain damage. And then mom, who was taking care of him, suffered an aneurysm. I believe in large part due to the stress from taking care of him. And then 14 days after mom passed, dad passed. So in a 10-month period, I went from having two healthy parents, many years to look forward to, many holidays, many vacations, and enjoyable times with my children, their grandchildren together. And in a 10-month period, they both were gone. It was a shock. I couldn't believe it. I still can't believe it. But the reality is we never know when the, wor when the end of our world will come. And so our job is to be ready, regardless of when that is, so that we can always be ready whenever the Lord calls us. Before we get some of the parables that address that, I do want to uh, take a few minutes to provide commentary on the thought about whether or not the world is getting progressively wicked. I think we often think of the, uh, the, 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 the progress of history as we know we are in the latter days. It's in the name of our church. We know that the second coming is coming. And with each day it gets closer. I think we often think, well, that just means that the world is getting increasingly wicked. The world is getting increasingly unbearable. And it will continue to get increasingly wicked and unbearable up until it culminates in the Savior coming again. And I think that's largely true. But I'm also not that pessimistic about the world, because in many ways, the world is becoming a much better, a much more humane place. I mean, just think about recent history. We've ended wickedness such as slavery. What a horrible institution that was. And thank God that that's gone. We've seen a huge decrease in the number of wars. I mean, the chance of you or I ever being impacted by a war in a serious way, especially as civilians, is so small now. What a blessing that is, and what an improvement in the world that is compared to the way things used to be. We have longer life expectancies. We're much more conscious of the way we treat each other. Racism is now something that is universally frowned upon. We have better treatment of those with handicaps. Better treatment of those that we don't understand, such as our friends in the LGBTQ community. In so many different ways, the world is becoming a better place. So I in some ways hesitate to say that the world right now is increasing in wickedness. But I do think uh, it is in many ways coming to a... Uh, coming to it's changing, that's for sure. Let's just say that. I mean, I re recently, just as another example of how the world is becoming a good place, this past weekend I went to a wedding, and the bride and the groom, they didn't want any gifts. In lieu of a gift, they wanted, in lieu of gifts, they wanted everyone to make a donation to them, and then they would then take that money and donate it to charity. 
what a magnanimous uh, display of compassion foregoing your own wedding gifts and instead asking for a donation to charity. So again, in many ways, humanity is progressing and becoming better. One of the challenges of that, though, is that, especially as it's happening so quickly, it becomes easy to judge those that live in the past, that live in history. And we see this a lot in the church. As many of the attitudes of the world and the, and the, and the, and the mores and the morals of the world have changed, we often forget that people even 50, 100, 200 years ago didn't have those same morals. And we can get in trouble if we judge those people based on the moral standards of today. And we can begin to judge them in uncharitable in very unfair ways. Um, and so I think it's important that we at least give as much charity to those that lived 100, 200 years ago and the way they carried out their lives and the way that they lived within the social constructs and within the societal norms of their time than we do to those who today live in different cultures or different socioeconomic conditions. I think that's very important. Now that said, I'm not even though I generally believe that the world is doing okay in terms of morals and in many ways getting better, it's, it, it's interesting though. In some ways it's like there's a king in the Jaredites in the Book of Mormon in Ether chapter 10 and his name was Morianton. And he was a good king. And in fact it says he, in verse 11 of Ether 10, it says he did do justice unto his people. And as a result, his people prospered, and they received the blessings that are usually reserved for righteous kings, because he was a good king, and he did justice to his people. Justice is such a popular word now in, in, uh, in society. Justice is deemed to be so important, and this Morianton, he did justice. However, he did not do justice unto himself because of his many whoredoms. And wherefore he was cut off from the presence of the Lord. So even though this king, even though he did justice to his people, he himself did not live in the way that he was supposed to live. And because of that, he was cut off from the presence of God. Because of the law of chastity in his case. And so while the world in many ways is getting much better, becoming much more humane, much more principled. It seems like in certain very, very fundamental ways, law of chastity especially being one, we have completely lost our way. And like Morient, and even though we might do justice to others, by violating the law of chastity, by violating some of other gods, some other of God's most sacred and most important laws, we cut ourselves off from the presence of God, and we are left to our own ways. Fortunately, we're generally doing well, but certainly no society can last if it's been cut off from the presence of God. Scriptures are replete with that story. 
And so again, I'm not one who thinks that the world is on its way to hell in a handbasket. In many important ways we're improving. But in many other fundamental ways, and I would put the law of chastity at the very top of that list, we are dying. We are being cut off in the presence of God. Dying in that most fundamental way. Dying being death, being a separation. Not a separation of body and spirit, but in this case, a separation of God and us. All right, so that's really all I'm going to say about the, uh, the concept of the end of the world we know that it is going to come. We know that the second coming is is arriving. It's getting closer each day, but we have no idea when that's going to happen. And so our responsibility is to remain prepared. And to that end, the Lord gave us several parables in Matthew chapter 25. <clears throat> Starting uh, at the beginning of Matthew 25, we have a parable of the ten virgins. It's one I think we're all familiar with. Five virgins have oil, extra oil. Five virgins do not have extra oil. As they were waiting for the bridegroom to come, it took a little longer than they were anticipating. As a result, those that did not have extra oil were not able to wait the entire length of time. And as the wedding procession eventually arrived at their waiting place, they weren't there to meet it because they had had to gone to the shops in order to buy additional oil. And by the time they came back, the wedding party had already passed them by. Of course, this is no one's fault but their own. They had chances. They could have brought other oil to begin with. They could have gone to buy additional oil much earlier in the day when it seemed unlikely that the wedding party would come so quickly, but instead they chose to tarry, they chose to wait, and they waited and waited and waited until finally they couldn't wait anymore, and then they went, and then they got the oil. And at that point, it was too late. And eventually they arrive at the place where the wedding banquet is taking place, and in Matthew 25, verse 11, they come to the, to the banquet place and say, Lord, Lord, open to us. And in verse 12, the response is, he said unto them, I know you not. But it's worth noting the Joseph Smith translation of this. The Joseph Smith translation of this does not say the Lord tells them, I know you not, but rather he says, ye know me not. Their sin was that they did not know the Lord. Perhaps on the wedding invitation it had said what time to expect. Or perhaps on the invitation it said, I'm going to take my time with this one. Make sure you bring extra oil. For whatever reason their inability to bring extra oil was an indication to the Lord that they did not know him and that they were not ready and worthy to be a part of his party. From there we go to another parable, the parable of the talents. It starts in verse 14. In verse 14 it says, 
we learn that there is a certain man who calls his servants together and delivers to them his goods. So these aren't just random people that he found. These are his servants. These are people that have been with him. They know what he's like, and they know what he expects of them. They would have known what he wanted them to do. So the servant that only got one talent, and then he buried it, and when the master returned, he showed him, and he said, Look, I didn't lose your talent because I buried it in the ground. He knew that's not what his master wanted to do. And it's interesting to compare his description of the master with the actual words of the master himself. Let's look in verse 21 as he's talking to the servant that received five talents and he took those five talents and made five more. In verse 21 he says to him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. This sounds like a wonderful master. Sounds like one who loves and encourages his servants. One who wants them to have joy and rewards them with joy when they do what they're supposed to do. But the servant with one talent, look how he describes the master in verse 24. As he's about to return and report to the master, he says, Lord, I knew thee that thou art an hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown, and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid, and went and hid my talent in the earth. The master that he's describing seems to be a very different individual than the master that we see who blessed the wise servant that took five and doubled it. So clearly, the, the servant with one talent, not only was he lazy, not only was he disobedient by not doing what he was supposed to do, he didn't even know his master. He did not understand what his master wanted him to do. And because of that, he did not understand his own purpose. And we are the same way in our relationship with God. Prophet Joseph Smith said, If a man learns nothing more than to eat, drink, and sleep, and does not comprehend any of the designs of God, the beast comprehends the same things. It eats, drinks, sleeps, and knows nothing more about God. Yet it knows as much as we, unless we are able to comprehend by inspiration, uh, by the inspiration of Almighty God. If men do not comprehend the character of God, they do not comprehend themselves. So how critical is it us? Is it for us to know God, to comprehend God, to comprehend and understand the master whose servants we are, to come to know him? Because it is only by knowing him and what he wants of us and the way in which he desires to bless us, that we can be like the servants that had five and gained five more. Those that view God as being big, scary, 
or don't even believe in him are similar to the servants with one talent. They do not know God. And as a result, without knowing God, they do not know themselves. They don't know their own potential. They don't know their own purpose. So certainly like this lazy servant was, he wasn't out working hard with his talent. He wasn't doing what the master wanted him to do. He buried it in the ground and then he went out and he played with his friends. He went out and he was having a good time. Assuming that by keeping his talent there that his master perhaps would be a little upset. Perhaps he would chide him. But the result for him was much worse. And he has no one to blame but himself. He didn't take things that the Lord had blessed him with. Most valuable of which is time. And use it as he was supposed to use it. And then when his master came back, and it must have been a long time. I mean, think how long it takes to double your money. And that's what he expected each of his servants to do. He must have been gone many, many years. They didn't know when he was going to come back. But to this servant that simply took his talent and buried it in the earth, he didn't care when the master was coming back. Because he wasn't busy doing what he was supposed to be doing. He completely neglected his responsibilities and was focusing on himself, doing what he wanted to do. Not knowing the master and not knowing what the master wanted to do. So in effect, his sin was the same as the foolish virgins. They did not know the master. Interestingly then, Matthew chapter 25 ends with a parable about people that seemed to not know the master. It's the parable of the sheep and the goats. The sheep on the right hand are blessed because without knowing it, they had been caring for the master. They had been doing the things that the master wanted them to do. And they said, well, when, when did we do this, Lord? We don't remember when we were taking care of you. And in verse 40, he says, And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, you have done it unto me. So even though they didn't know they were doing it to the master, in taking care of those around them, and feeding the hungry and clothing the poor, they were doing what the master wanted them to do. So they didn't recognize that it was the master that was receiving these blessings. But they certainly knew the master. Well, on the other hand, the goats, they did not know the master, and they were not busy doing what the master wanted them to do. And as a result, they were cast out, rather than receiving the blessings that their master had in store for them. So how do we prepare for the second coming? By coming to know Christ. That's how. By knowing the master. And the way that we do this is by keeping his commandments. By keeping our covenants. And that's why we receive ordinances. And that's why those ordinances each include a covenant. Because those ordinances are designed 
and profound ways to help us to know Jesus Christ, to help us to know the Master. Each ordinance is highly symbolic. And as we study the symbolism behind those ordinances, they all lead us to better know Christ. And each of the covenants that we enter into, as we make those ordinances, are each specifically designed to help us to better know Jesus Christ, to better know the Master. And I would submit that one of the reasons that the Lord wants us and expects us and commands us to receive sacred ordinances and enter into covenants with him is because certainly while you can know about Jesus Christ without entering into those covenants and receiving those ordinances, there is no other way to truly know him than through covenants, than through obedience. And so we shouldn't be surprised that the culmination of these covenants, the greatest covenant that we can enter into, requires us to give ourselves to God. And like the widow, requires us to give of all of our living. Those of you that have been through the temple, those of you that have received the sacred covenants associated with the, the ordinance of the endowment, you know the things that you have covenanted to give God. You know you have covenanted to be like that widow, to give all of your living to God, to give your whole life to God, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Those are the things that we have covenanted to do. And those are the things that the Savior taught are necessary for us to do. Though we spend lots of time giving to Caesar that which is Caesar, we have to remember that that worldly stuff is all temporary. Eventually the world will end. Eventually we will leave it. And everything that we've spent all of our time building up here, there won't be two stones left on top of each other. But if we've spent our time, if we've given to God that which is God, if we've, as Elder Maxwell counseled, given everything that we have which is truly ours to give, which is our will and our heart and our soul, if we've given that to God, then when he comes again, we will be ready. We will be able to stand at his right side. And like he said unto the wise servant, he will call to each of us and he will say, I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. And it is my prayer that we will each seek for and find the joy of the Lord as we give everything that we have to him. It's my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.